2: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 17th, 2021, the new, new, new Cold War edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast right here in Washington, D.C., surrounded by my pillow fort. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School joins me from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And from New York City, it's John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning and Face the Nation and also CBS's new streaming channel for Dogs and Cats
3: and also John, that's really right
2: also the closed circuit television on the 56th street entrance of- last, last week it was in the closed circuit television I- in the supply closet so you exp- you have new you have ex- you have expanded
3: <laughs> well i i'm getting a bigger audience
2: <laughs> it's true i think there's carriage on a lot more a lot more <laughs> stations there this week president biden tries to reset america's relationship to europe russia and china we will talk about that and whether anyone won the putin summit Then, did you hear what Mitch McConnell said about Supreme Court confirmations? More importantly, did Justice Stephen Breyer hear what he said? (laughs) We'll talk about the state of the Supreme Court and the future of the Supreme Court. Then, what is critical race theory? What do Republicans think it is? And why has it become a scorching, hot cultural divide? We will ask NYU's Melissa Murray to help us make sense of the latest culture war skirmish. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. President Biden is trying or perhaps hoping to return the world to something like a pre-Trump status quo with Western democracies, particularly Western European democracies, closely allied and guided by U.S. leadership, with Russia boxed in and with China at bay. China not an ally, not quite an enemy, enemy, but more an enemy. And Biden used the G7 and his Russia summit, his Putin summit, to manifest this vision or to try to manifest the vision. It was very uh it was kind of very old school the the summit in particular with Putin had all the trappings of of kind of uh eighties and nineties summit the 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 drama building up to it, the rival press conferences but coming out of it, I felt like, man, the world is just a big mess, it's still a mess, and we can wish that this uh that to return to something like what we had in the 90s or something even that we had during the Obama years or even the Bush years. But that wish does not make it so. So, Emily, let's start with the, with the Putin conversation. Biden wanted some progress getting Russia to rein in hackers, to perhaps let up on political rivals, to restore something like more normal relations with the United States. Did he get any of that?
4: It doesn't really seem like he did. I mean, it seems like he doesn't really have very much leverage. I can't really figure out how he has the ability to affect Putin's um, behavior on these topics when it seems like what Putin is doing is working for Putin in the sense that he has this deniability. Maybe it's plausible, maybe it's not. But he just says like that Russia is not involved in hacking, etc., And um, he is able to still make the United States seem like not particularly that formidable a foe in terms of its alliances, because it's going to take Biden a while to really patch things up with the Europeans. And so it just seems like a, a perfect moment for Putin to continue to take advantage of.
2: Right. There was there was this line that Biden Biden said the last thing Putin wants is another Cold War. But actually feels like that's exactly what Putin wants. And he's getting it. He's got it
3: well we don 't we frankly have no idea, and one of the problems with these summits is that most of what 's important, if anything 's going to be important, is the thing we are least likely to know so for example, one of the huge topics uh, on the table is cyber warfare it 's undoubtedly the case that what Biden did was show Putin in the smallest version of the meetings he had what the u s knows about what what russia is doing, and the escalating tiers of return fire that the U.S. will engage in if if Russia continues. Now, because the U.S. has pretty good intelligence and it has Western allies, which have pretty good intelligence on Russia, there's a chance that what he told him was potentially frightening. And in that sense, it's not impossible that the U.S. has leverage and the goods on Russia and what Russia hopes to do in the world. I mean, it's the world's 11th largest economy. It's, it's got weapons, but it's in trouble in other ways. So we don't know if that happened. It could be also perfectly plausible that Biden said, here's our escalating retaliations that we're gonna take and, and Putin only smiled and maybe even encouraged him. We, don't, we just don't know. But any expert that I've talked to about this says basically the most important stuff you won't know whether it was useful or not. And one of the one of the mistakes that television in particular, but all of us engage in, is like judging this in the moment. Um, remember the last president met with Putin and instead of boasting about what the US intelligence agencies had on Russia, President Trump denigrated those intelligence agencies and said Putin was to be believed above them. So just resetting that is probably enough. But if you were gonna try and reset any kind of order his trip seems to have, you know, taken the first halting steps
2: toward doing that. Right. Julia Yaffe had a really good metaphor speaking about the relations with our European allies, saying they seem about as confident in the strength of the transatlantic relationship as a person whose wayward partner returns after storming out and cheating, promising that everything is better now, everything is fixed. And it's true, it's going to take a while for any sort of normality to return to the relationships with our allies. But I'm even worried that that is an impossibility now, because the the, the notion that you can create an alliance of democracies against uh, against the autocracies, that that you can have a, a alignment of these Western European and Japan and Australia and 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 Korea aligned against the China, Russia, the Philippines, and various other countries, seems not particularly promising these days because the democracies themselves don't seem to share a set of interests. The Western European democracies with Brexit, with what's happened in Hungary and Poland are not particularly strong. The sense that the United States is a teetering democracy itself, it's really worrisome that this order that has been maintained essentially by not quite a hegemonic United States, but a very powerful United States in companionship with France and Germany and Japan Australia, Canada, that pacification, that calmness, that sense of uh, of, a, of a good order in the world is really unattainable anymore.
3: Well, I think that makes sense. You've got a Russian pipeline going into Germany, uh, Nord Stream 2, which... Um, shows the way in which you have a, the large, you know, most powerful democracy in Europe enmeshed economically with this autocracy. And then you see that China has extensive economic connections to lots of European nations and those European con- economies. So you have an economic enmeshment there. And even the U.S., which is, as you say, Biden's trying to be the sort of reconstitutor of a group of democracies around a set of liberal norms about human rights and fair play and rules of the road and all that. But even the U.S., when it comes to a country like Saudi Arabia, an autocracy, the U.S. has certain interests that cause it to retain that alliance despite the fact that Saudi Arabia abuses all of these norms of democracy and the liberal order that Biden is in Europe right now championing. So even in its own case, the U.S. has to make compromises and accommodations And so now that's essentially all of the countries he's trying to to gather around have to make all of those accommodations to their own national self-interest in the same exact way.
4: What do you all make of how much Biden is presenting China as this rival that must be squelched in some way? Right. I mean, the Senate got it together to pass a bipartisan bill that would give all this money to American industries like semiconductors and other areas of the of the um American economy that Biden and the senators are hoping will then be pumped up in some way that prevents China from taking over those sectors. Is this wise? Like, do we wanna be making it so clearly presented as like an us versus them with China? Would we be better off trying to embrace them in some way?
2: I'm so ambivalent, because of course you have this is a country which is practicing possibly genocide, certainly a form of ethnic cleansing, certainly has concentration camps aimed at a minority population that is extremely, increasingly aggressive and nationalistic. On the other hand, it is responsible for the greatest increase in human well-being in the history of the world in the past generation, that the the, the growth of the Chinese economy and the way that hundreds of millions of people have lives that are better now because of what it's doing is cannot be denied and cannot be... Downplayed, and it's our largest trading partner, or for if not our largest, you know, will be our largest trading partner, and it's a huge source of innovation and and creativity in the world. So, it feels that we need to find some way to to be rivals with China, but also to be interconnected with China, and China is not. It, the China of today is not the, the Soviet Union of, of the 1980s. It is, a, it is deeply enmeshed in the global economy and it, it depends on its trade and its commerce with us as much as we depend on it with them. So we all know we have to be interconnected.
3: Yeah. So it's, yeah, we have to maintain this tr- tough position where we're interconnected economically and also with respect to climate. And this is true of both China and Russia. The U.S. if it wants to improve the climate picture in the world and be a leader in that way, as Biden says he does, and as democracies say they want to do, China and Russia have to be on board. So it requires cooperation there. I think Biden can be doing all kinds of things and these halting baby steps of reemerging as a a, a leader of the liberal order. That's great. (laughs) Two of the biggest movements in politics in America, Trump and Sanders had at their core an anti-globalization, anti-globalist message. So if you're a foreign country looking at the U.S. and its role in all of this, you th- you might think, you know what, in about three years, it, we're going to go back to a U.S. that's closer to kind of what the, the Trump view than the Biden internationalist view.
2: Right. And there's this interesting way in which the United States, the, the way time horizons work has changed Places between the United States and Russia and China, it used to be that China and Russia and particularly the Soviet Union would go through these kind of spasms and massive changes and it was kind of constant turmoil, whether it was from Stalin to Khrushchev or uh, then with Gorbachev and then the arrival of Putin. But now you have in in China uh, with Xi Jinping an incredibly steady, extremely autocratic established leader and a and a government that really thinks in the long term. And in Russia, maybe not a government that thinks in the long term, but a leader and a leadership that has been entrenched for many years. And they watch us come and go and watch the sort of wild, variegated swings of U.S. policy. And I think probably are like, ha, you know, why bother to even pay attention? Biden will be gone in four years and it'll be some some person who has totally different views and totally different team. And the unsteadiness of America... And unsteadiness of American policy is a real problem. Hey, listeners! If you become a member of Slate Plus, you will get bonus segments on the Gabfest every week. You'll also get bonus segments on other Slate podcasts and other benefits like no ads on any Slate podcast and bonus episodes of some shows like Slow Burn. And you're going to be supporting the work that we do here on the Gabfest. It's only a dollar for your first month. You can sign up by going to slatecom Plus. Our topic this week. What inconvenient pre-technology activities do you miss? Like looking at a map, for example, or actually going to a movie theater. Which ones do you miss? We're going to talk about the ones that we miss and loved. Again, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura Frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off. Plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Mitch McConnell said this week what any breathing person already knew, which is that Republicans would block a Biden nominee to the Supreme Court in 2024, an election year. And McConnell went further in this interview with Hugh Hewitt. He said that even in 2023, if there were a Supreme Court nomination, Supreme Court seat open, Republicans controlling the Senate, they might try to block it. We'd have to wait and see what happens, said McConnell, which is basically him saying, yeah, we would block that. So, Emily, McConnell's statements are being interpreted as some kind of upping the pressure on Justice Stephen Breyer to retire. But honestly, honestly, if Breyer had not heard the signals before now, it is not clear why he would be paying attention to this latest statement.
4: You know, to take a step back, We're really heading in the direction of there will be no Supreme Court nominations unless the president and the Senate are controlled by the same party. That's not really what the Constitution envisioned with, you know, the advise and consent provision for the Senate and judicial appointments. It's certainly not how it's worked historically so we'll just have to watch how that one actually unfolds. You know, the more immediate question, I mean, 2024 and twenty-three are pretty far away, and the pressure on Justice Breyer is to retire either this summer or next year, and I think a lot of Democrats feel like this summer, carpe diem, um, there are a lot of risks in waiting. What if Senator Leahy, dies or something happens to him and he's replaced by a Republican since there's a Republican governor in Vermont, you can spin out various scenarios like this in which this, the Democrats no longer actually even have 50 in the Senate. And so I think there is right now a tension between that very partisan desire to have Biden appoint Breyer's replacement. And Breyer's own, at least professed at the moment, um, preference to present the court as being, you know, doing something called law that's different than something called politics. And so his statements that seem to say that, you know, it's wrong to imagine that there's this partisan importance to when he retires or when anyone retires. I, in my bones, cannot believe that that's really I mean, Justice Breyer is really smart and sophisticated, and he knows all the nuances of this. He understands that his own legacy is up for grabs here and hangs in the balance. And if his seat is filled by the next Republican president, it's going to be a very different justice than the justice who President Biden would pick. And so I can't tell how that tension is going to play out or whether we're going to have to wait a whole year because he's going to push this you know closer to the november 2022 election and hope that nothing happens to that 50 i mean
2: his stain uh, even one more year actually politicizes this whole situation even more in some ways because it almost certainly guarantees or it makes it much more likely that it causes this freeze in the court for a couple of years because the republicans wouldn't approve somebody and that will politicize it in ways that he doesn't want. Whereas if he well, you've steps- moved on past
4: 2022. Well, but you? 2022,
2: I mean, I, that, the 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 skip between 2021 and 2022 seems to me just like I'm greedy. I want to grab another year, and I'm gonna I'm gonna really take my chances that nothing happens in the American political system that causes a Democratic senator to die, a Democratic senator to be impeached, something, some weirdness, because the Democrats hold the Senate by the absolute narrowest of margins, and anything that happens, they're in trouble. Even They don't even have to have somebody die and have a Republican reappointed. They just need to have somebody die, period. That's an extraordinarily selfish, crazy risk to take if you do think, oh, I do want Biden to appoint my successor. It's crazy to take that risk of an extra year.
3: Also, if it feels like the Supreme Court Opinions of the of Mitch McConnell have have a kind of Calvin ball feeling to them Which is like I make up the rules as the rules need to be made up for the current moment so in 2022 it seems perfectly reasonable that if you were uh, a Republican leader that you want to create some new rule To shut down the Senate now, maybe you can't do it for a Supreme Court nominee when you don't have the majority But you might do other things. You might do other things that um, and because you argue under some new rule that uh, Biden's nominee shouldn't be confirmed until the people have a vote in the 2022 election, the same way that was claimed in 2016. And while there may be and, and since we, I think, have proved that those making historically disconnected arguments are not penalized for that. And in fact, rewarded by the incredible amount of coverage and and controversy that would be created by this new Calvin Ball rule in 2022. That seems to me to be highly likely.
4: And then add on to that. So first of all, to add to David's point about risk, I mean, we Justice Breyer watched along with the rest of us when Justice Ginsburg took this risk and it didn't work out. You know, so there's that precedent that looms large, very recent. And then throw in the fact that the docket for the Supreme Court next year includes both abortion and guns. And who knows what they'll add to that? Very well, affirmative action as well. And so maybe Justice Breyer really wants to be there for those cases. You can imagine. On the other hand, talk about the politicized court. You know, you're going to have these incredibly divisive issues, probably divisive rulings that are going to come down. And then that summer, we're going to have a big fight over a Supreme Court nomination with, you know, it's entirely likely the kind of dynamic John is talking about. And the fewer months there are before the election and the changing of hands, perhaps, in the Senate... The the more chance there are for exactly that kind of political gaming.
3: Can I just say, if you were Breyer and you were trying to do the thing that's the best, the best possible for thing for Democrats and the institution, wouldn't you basically hold the posture he is holding now and then suddenly retire in a big
2: surprise? Why? Yes. Why wouldn't you have done it back in January?
4: Well, it's not. It messes up their term when you do it in the middle because no, then you, are, ret-
2: you retire pending oh, you the approval of my successor yes you retire i i will step down the minute my successor is because then you for, then you
3: swamp the new president with constant debates about the court while
2: he's trying yeah. to get off the it's start it's not a constant debate i, I everyone don't think knows we would Bri- be better the briar the nomination the briar retirement is baked into the political system no one cares about it Republicans are going to you know they'll make a huge noise to object to whoever the nominee is but they know Democrats are going to push this through they're going to get the 50 votes they it's all baked in it's not that it, there's no there's no actual stakes as long but as the de- Democrats I have disagree with that Yeah, I disagree with I think
4: it would have been really annoying to have yeah. to listen to like six months of the drumbeat up to the retirement and
3: we're about to talk about critical race theory which is uh, has grown into a huge controversy disproportionate to its role in actual life if we think there's a lot of talk about crit- critical race theory uh, a <laughs> talk about
2: a, a supreme court seat would have been constant and I, and I, insane i just don't think the Breyer, i think the briar seat has no stakes because republicans have just gotten three seats they know it they know that barring some incredible error by Breyer and the democrats they're not going to get that seat and it just doesn't feel like it has a lot of stakes to it to me but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I find that right. very
4: strange set of assumptions, given how good conservatives have been at demonstrating to people, their backers, how important the court is. They love talking about the Supreme also, Court.
3: Yeah,
2: and Sure, they love talking about the Supreme Court, but they are sitting on a, a solid six to
3: three. Right. But yep. just so because
4: more, 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 more. Right. Exactly. So they just, don't see John Roberts as solid. Sorry, John.
3: No, but just because you have, like, three pairs of Nikes doesn't mean you don't want a fourth. I mean... The, the, and that
4: your favorite thing to talk about isn't more Nike sneakers. Exactly.
3: And that you need to raise money for your campaigns by talking about Nike sneakers. And that, I well, mean, I th- it, it's, it, like, it, it channels into all of the existing uh, pleasure centers of the existing political system.
2: I, I think if you look back at the Sotomayor and the uh, Kagan nominations there just wasn't it was kind of like oh yeah we know you got you got these it's they weren't that big a deal
4: I, I just t- really disagree with this. I, you remember all the attacks on Justice Sotomayor? Yes. About, like, oh, they Latino, will. It was sure, really, sure, really. Yes. There was yes. a lot of political hay that got made out of that. I don't think you're right.
2: There will absolutely be hostility to whoever Biden nom- nominates. And they will be. But that has nothing to do with whether B- Breyer had said in January, I'm going to step away. We would have had and, months
4: and months of that and speculation. Of, uh, and, oh, Biden said he wanted to appoint a black woman. And so who could that be? And then think about the fact that um, Judge Kattan. Angie Brown Jackson just got to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is a good launching pad for the Supreme Court. There would have been tons of hoopla around whether she got that promotion. She's an African-American woman. And then in addition to being a lot of other things like very smart and capable, etc.
2: Anyway, do you think there is any chance, Emily, that Breyer holds out for another year?
4: I do think there's a chance. I mean, for one thing, you just hired a fourth clerk, which is like a thing you do when you're planning to be a full-on justice, not like a senior justice. And another is I've just heard some rumblings from people who speak to him, which I do not, uh, suggesting that they had some certainty he was planning to retire at the end of this term several months ago, and now they have uncertainty about it. Which doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, just that I don't feel... Um, sure about it.
2: This is not Fox News, and yet we are going to talk about critical race theory. And we're joined by Melissa Murray, who's a professor of law at NYU, an expert in family law, constitutional law, reproductive rights and justice, and also the co-host or a co-host of strict scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. So, Melissa, I'm going to be the embarrassing uh, ignoramus here someone has to ask this, what is critical race theory and what do conservatives say it is? And do those two things have any connection to each other?
1: So critical race theory is a theory of law that's been around for about 40 years. Um, Its early acolytes were folks like Derrick Bell and Neil Gotonda, Patricia Williams and Mari Matsuda and Kimberly Crenshaw. And so what critical race theory does is recast the role of law as central to and indeed complicit in upholding a racial hierarchy and indeed other hierarchies, including hierarchies about gender, sexual orientation, and disability. And again, the central premise is that racism is a normal and ordinary part of our society, not an aberration. And Law is actually part of making racism and race salient because race is ultimately not a biological determinant but a social construction, and law is part of how we socially construct race.
2: And what does that have to do with what conservatives say critical race theory is?
1: So, as I understand it, the conservative argument around critical race theory is that it is scapegoating white people and basically teaching individuals that to be white or to be a non-minority is to occupy a position of incredible privilege, regardless of your history or your relationships with people of color, and that you are constantly and obviously part of maintaining a system of white supremacy and racial superiority simply by virtue of being white. And th- that's sort of how it's presented, I think, on Fox News, but, you uh, You know, I think we've seen it deployed most recently against the 1619 Project, which is the New York Times effort to provide an alternative reading of the history of the United States that better incorporates the legacy of slavery and indeed seeks to recenter the origins of the United States, not necessarily around 1776 exclusively, but also to complement the traditional founding with 1619, which is the year in which chattel slavery was introduced in the United States.
4: So you and I went to law school in the late 90s, happily together for part of it. And I remember critical race theory as just like part of our education. It was one strand among many for understanding law. It's like so integral to how I think about, um, the world all the time. And when I, um, when critical race theory became this kind of like shorthand slash boogeyman for all the things conservatives don't like about the current discussion of race, I was so taken aback at first. And now, you know, I understand it well enough to, to, um, have followed what you were saying. And I think there's this strange, Morphing going on, so I I wonder if you what you think about this. Like on the one hand, I feel like this is a cartoon version of critical race theory. Maybe it sort of would be more accurately described as anti-racist trainings when they become more and more about subjectivity and subordination and power dynamics and solely focused on race, like you were saying, as opposed to other aspects of people's identities. And I think sometimes that can be counterproductive and there can be a lot of resentment born of that approach, though it also can have some validity to it. So I just wonder if that is part of how you see how this term and this way of thinking has evolved Has it actually evolved or is it just this giant misunderstanding, I guess, is what I'm still struggling with.
1: Well, I I don't know that it's necessarily about evolution or even misunderstanding in as much as, you know, it is a kind of talisman for a moment, right? You know, I think you're exactly right. When we were law students in the late 1990s, critical race theory was just part of the curriculum and not even an especially controversial or even salient part of the curriculum. I mean, you know, we went to Yale Law School and there were a handful, I mean, maybe one or two critical race theorists. On the faculty, but you know, it was not a required part of the curriculum in any way. I think students who were drawn to it took those classes when they were offered. Kind of marginalized, Um, probably, right? Yeah. I I think very marginalized would be a fair way to put it. Um, And and certainly that marginalization um, predated our time at Yale and in the academy. but but I, I think what it reflects now and the way it's being understood now is that it somehow critical race theory is everywhere. And anytime anyone wants to have a discussion about race it is critical race theory, and that's not true. You know, I saw this terrific tweet by Jess Dweck the other day that said, "You know, if you're worried that your child is being indoctrinated with critical race theory, you should actually be ecstatic because that means your child is in law school because that's where critical <laughs> race theory is." Um, it, it, which is true. Critical race theory is in law schools. It, it's not, and, and in sociology programs, it, it's not really in K through 12 education, which seems to be the locus around which a lot of this anxiety and certainly a lot of the legislative activity and political activity is being organized. And so it has become, I think, a little shorthand for anything that attempts to inject discussions of race into a broader conversation about society and and what the ills of society are.
3: And it's one of those situations in which this very debate over trying to define it and recapture the original uh, definition all benefits the people who have turned it into this boogeyman, because all the time spent in this territory is time that those supporters here, critical race theory, critical race theory, and that's been turned into into this charged thing. Is critical race theory, in its original conception, You mentioned, Melissa, that it was, you know, not even an especially important part of your law school education. Has it lost its utility in its original form because it's been so uh, bastardized in the current political uh, malformation of it?
1: Well, so I, I don't know that it's necessarily um, been marginalized because of this particular moment. You know, to be clear, critical race theory was not the first body of legal theory to make this challenge. I think as early as the 1930s, the legal realists were saying a, a similar kind of thing. I'm not necessarily surfacing race as the salient question, but this idea that law was not divorced from politics, and that judges, rather than discovering the law, were actually injecting their own political viewpoints into the way they made determinations about law. So, you know, that was in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, It was at Yale. I think the intellectual inheritor of the legal realist tradition would be critical legal studies, um, which, again, sort of thinks about these questions of power and dominance and how they are reflected in legal structures and how law is actually constructing power, is complicit in maintaining power, and that de- that developed and became quite salient in the 1970s at Harvard Law School, and it then spawned a series of other kind of critical movements, among them critical race theory, but not exclusively critical race theory. There were also the femcrits, which talked about patriarchy as a system of power and dominance, the latcrits followed, which sort of focused on Latinos, um, Desi crits, South Asian identity. Um, critical race theory has really been the one to pick up a lot of this heat. And I think it's because it's the one that's about race and race is probably the defining issue of our time and, and certainly the most controversial issue of our time.
2: I'm not sure this is a question exactly for you, Melissa. It may be a question for discussion, which is in my reading about how this has become this conservative cause celeb, it feels like Critical race theory is the, are the three words they have put on it to make it seem, you know, like these scary Marxist academics, scary commies in, in their Ivy-covered law schools are doing it. But that it fundamentally arose out of some other discussion about diversity training in, at institutions, diversity training at schools, and how history is taught. And that a concern about that was then... Grafted onto this phrase, and they don't really have anything to do with each other.
1: I think that's exactly right. Um, You know, so what I think is at the core of the objection to critical race theory is not critical race theory at all, but really this moment that arises after the George Floyd protests, this moment where people really want to talk about what is the role of race in structuring society? How do we move toward being an anti-racist society, how do we move beyond being a colorblind society, which is sort of the, you know, liberal, legal apotheosis of of how we should think about race and and instead actually be color conscious, but in a way that is anti-racist. And that seems to be the real bogeyman. And, And I will note I don't think Fox News ever talked about critical race theory as much as it has um until this year. like the last time I can remember Fox News having anything to say about critical race theory was when Derek Bell died and they played on a loop, that clip of then law student Barack Obama introducing Derek Bell and you know hugging him and it was meant to sort of suggest that Barack Obama like Derek Bell was some kind of radical you know I, I don't know that derek bell was necessarily a radical i don't know that barack obama was a radical but that's the only time i've ever heard them Talk about critical race theory at length until this particular moment,
3: which is part of its power as a political piece of propaganda, though, is that because it needs to be somewhat undefined, a little scary, snuck in there, hiding in textbooks already embedded in life. Right. If it is, do you I mean, isn't that doesn't that seem to be where some of its power comes from?
1: Well, it's it's easier to craft it into what you want it to be if it is somewhat unknown and unspecified in common parlance. And I think that's right. Most Americans don't know what critical race theory is, again, because you don't really come into contact with critical race theory unless you go to law school or you do graduate studies in the social sciences. I think what your sixth grader is perhaps getting is Perhaps a more inclusive history curriculum that talks about slavery and talks about reconstruction and redemption, which is something that, you know, I will say, I had a very good history teacher and we talked a lot about the Civil War and reconstruction, we never talked about what follows with the Hayes-Tilden compromise and, and redemption. and and. That's sort of what's on the table right now. Can we be more inclusive? Can we be more truthful about our history? And can we tell it warts and all? Because there are parts of it that I think are problematic.
3: just briefly, it reminds me of the, whatever politician it was who said his opponent was a masticating thespian, you know, <laughs> using words that no that people didn't know to make yes. it sound more sinister than necessary.
2: It was Claude Pepper's opponent. Was
3: it Claude Pepper's opponent?
4: Masticating okay. is a perfect nice. word for that. It just means chewing, right?
2: Yeah, no, that his sister. His, his sister. His sister, even better. Yeah. Sister. Yeah. One
4: step removed. So, I mean, we're having these legislative bills in conservative states that are trying to constrict... What people can teach a little bit in universities, which seems like obviously not allowed by the First Amendment, and and also in public schools, which also I want to think is not allowed by the First Amendment. You're
1: shaking your head. It's like less clear, right? It's less clear because I, I think it's widely accepted that states have pretty broad authority to shape the public school curriculum, and, and you know, again, to be straightforward about it, I think. There are times when progressives cheer that kind of autonomy for the states. For example, if if you want to be able to talk about same-sex marriage in school, which was, you know, a big issue around 2008 or so, um, you want the schools to be able to have that kind of authority. This is sort of the flip side of that authority. Um, You know, they can also do things like this where they're limiting what can be taught. And it's not clear that the First Amendment extends as robustly in this context as it does in the higher education context.
4: So given that, I look at some of the language in these bills and I think to myself that I, if I was writing curriculum or if I was a principal or a teacher, I might start just feeling like you can't talk about race at all because the bills are so vague. It becomes really unclear exactly like what's okay and what's not. And you might just decide to sidestep the whole issue. And of course, that would be perhaps exactly what some of the people writing the bills want. Just let's pretend this isn't here,
1: um, which seems... Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, I think that's exactly what these bills are designed to to, to do. Um, if there is that kind of vagueness in the law, that that sort of amorphousness, if you are... A beleaguered administrator in a cash strapped school district, you're not going to take the chance of a legal challenge brought by some well funded conservative group. You're just going to avoid the issue at all and just, you know, take it all out, make it as plain as possible, and just go about your business. And I think that's exactly, I mean, it's meant to have this deterrent or chilling effect on raising any issue of race in the classroom.
4: Yeah, and that just seems to me not just like it's preventing something like the 1619 Project from being taught, but it actually is a big step backward because of some of the textbooks that have become used already do a better job than what you were just describing about your high school education.
1: Now, I'm thinking um, the People's History of the United States, which is now taught in sixth grade, or at least my sixth grader. And had Eric textbook. L- textbooks. Yes. Yes, yes exactly. Um, t- yeah. Just sort of think about the population who is impacted by this. Um, You know, I live in New York City where the bulk of students in the public schools are going to be black and brown students, students who perhaps would be most benefited from seeing a sense of their history and their own story in the United States being reflected back to them. And that's being entirely stripped out.
4: Melissa Murray, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners who want more Supreme Court, um, we, I very much recommend Strict Scrutiny, with, which Melissa hosts with Kate Shaw and Leah Littman. Um, so if you get a little Supreme Court here and then you turn to Dahlia Lithwick's Amicus podcast, Strict Scrutiny should be right there. Is that where you steal,
2: steal all your Supreme Court insights?
4: Yeah, pretty much. Thanks so much,
1: Melissa.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Melissa.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Let's go to cocktail chatter. John the Dickerson, what do you have to chatter about this week?
3: I have two uh, related pieces of business news that struck me as interesting as we um, figure out what the economy looks like as as, uh, we return to work. The Wall Street Journal had a piece that said that um, the labor market, basically people are just deciding to leave their jobs in a way that has not been the case since 2000, so 21 years ago in part because there's more tightness in certain kinds of jobs. Certain areas like manufacturing have gotten federal assistance that makes them a little bit stronger, and people are basically deciding after the pandemic, like, I want jobs that are more meaningful, or I want a... And and then as a part of that, one of them is that they want jobs where the work-from-home life and this blending is exists more. In the face of that, the CEO of um, Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, said that basically by Labor Day, I'll be very disappointed if people haven't found their way into the office. And then we'll have a different kind of conversation, basically saying, if you want to get paid New York rates, you work in New York. None of this, I'm in Colorado and getting paid like I'm sitting New York City. Sorry, that doesn't work. Now, I think that might've been a little overread because he kind of modified it a little bit later, but essentially the thrust of that is, um, you know, get back in the office. And it'll be fascinating to see how the economy kind of sorts out all of that in in the coming months. Emily, what's your chatter?
4: So just as we are ending the show, the Supreme Court issued two major decisions uh, Thursday morning. The first, the Supreme Court said that the plaintiffs who tried to X out Obamacare, which might be for the final time, don't even have standing to sue. So this whole idea that because Congress zeroed out the individual mandate, it's not a tax and the whole law should fall, which the lower court judge agreed with, all gone, all wrong, because actually nobody had standing to sue on these grounds in the first place. The second really interesting and, to me, surprising decision, at least in terms of the composition of the majority and the justices, was in the case Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. This is a case in which the city of Philadelphia wanted to stop contracting with Catholic Social Services when Catholic Social Services said, we can't approve LGBT um, same-sex couples as foster parents for religious reasons. So this was a religious discrimination suit against the city, And the justices are saying, um, in this majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, that the law that Philadelphia had that was protecting LGBT people against discrimination was not generally applicable because there was a kind of hypothetical exception in it where a city official could refuse to certify on some unspecified basis. This is a really technical decision, a kind of technicality, which I think the court is kind of using as a dodge to avoid this much bigger question about whether religious groups should have very secure rights um, when they're having anti-discrimination laws enforced against them. And what you can see the court doing here, I think, is kind of like Masterpeak's Cake Shop, which was the case about the baker who was refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding in that you have a kind of one-time only ruling about very specific language, in this case, in this um, Philadelphia ordinance. And it doesn't seem to be broad in terms of, you know, providing some big new right for religious groups to discriminate. On the other hand, in this particular instance, LGBT people lose the benefit of what Philadelphia was trying to to do to protect their rights. And surprisingly, all three of the liberal justices signed on to Roberts's opinion, along with um, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. And so you imagine that they saw themselves as heading off something that would have been much worse from their point of view. But I'm really struck by the end of Robert's opinion, where he acknowledges that Philadelphia was trying to provide for equal treatment. And then he really just doesn't give any reasons for why that wouldn't be compelling. And the lack of a dissent really kind of hurts, I think, analytically and both, I imagine, emotionally for people who are affected by this decision. That's what the Supreme Court did this week.
2: Uh, I have two chatters. First, total log rolling. Sort of log rolling. Not really, actually. Sounds just, great. <laughs> it's more of a
3: a twig uh, gesticulation.
2: Well, I'm log rolling. I'm, I'm praising something I was on. So I was on a podcast called Six Months Later, hosted by Tara Newton, Wordsworth, and Matthew Chadbourne. And it's, I think, just such a fantastic idea for a podcast. So they interview people about their lives and their hopes for the future, And then six months later, they come back and interview them and kind of ask them how it's gone and what's happened, how everything worked out. And then they edit it together and so into one interview where you have the before you and then the six months later you. And so they interviewed me. They interviewed me back in uh, December about what I thought was happening in the next six months and some thoughts and predictions and what I was hoping I would be doing and where I was in my life. And then what had happened in the intervening six months. And it was a wonderful way to catch up on yourself and it was really fun it was super fun you guys should do it if they ask and just very interesting so much of life is is about snapshots about moments about the kind of what happened the immediate week before or the day before the hour before but the idea that you are taking a slightly longer view and that you get a chance to go back and hear yourself from six months ago before you tape the return segment and hear what you were thinking about was it was wonderful
3: there's actually a decision making um, process that embeds this in your life, which is every time you do have a moment of transition is to write down your expectations and then go back to those later and and write down what actually happened and you'll recognize that your catastrophizing is usually much more you're, you're catastrophizing the outcomes more than maybe exact, actually happens.
2: They did ask me for my predictions back in six months, what did I think would happen in the intervening six months, and I said I thought. Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth would die within weeks of each other. And I was half right, because Prince Philip did die in the intervening six months. But But
4: within weeks of each other was kind of the core part of the prediction. I I think you get like 25% credit.
2: Okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, My other chatter, less log rolling. I don't listen to a lot of new music. So I was surprised when Spotify recommended a playlist this week. And even more surprised when I listened to it. It was titled If and Only If was the name of the playlist. And as near as I can tell, it's a collaboration between free jazz legend Peter Bratzman, who John probably knows, and former Justice Stephen Breyer, in which Bratzman plays his tenor sax, which has been described as the sound of flesh being torn from a spindly set of bones, while Breyer recites some of his more, more notorious hypothetical questions in the slam poetry style including his beloved Mutant Tomato Children hypothetical from 2006. It's really weird, to be honest. But, uh, you know, that's Spotify for you.
4: <laughs> well done.
2: Uh, thanks for that, that uh, sincere chuckle, Emily. I appreciate it. I that <laughs> one. Listeners, uh, great chatters again. So so many great chatters. Please keep them coming to us at at Best Tweet to us and our listener chatter comes from leslie camp and it's actually something i considered for a chatter myself
4: me too this is like yeah, me too the had to be <laughs> sleep political best chatter
2: hi this is leslie camp from somerville south carolina my listener chatter is about an article from the cape cod times It is a whale of a story about a commercial lobster diver who was swallowed by a humpback whale off the coast of Cape Cod, and he lived to tell the tale. He was able to breathe while inside the whale because he was wearing scuba gear. The whale eventually surfaced and spit him out. The diver's name, much to my disappointment, is not Jonah, but he certainly has the best fish story ever.
4: So do we believe this story? 100%.
2: 100%. Of a lot
4: of, you totally do. I've oh, you some, don't believe it? Well, I've heard some marine biologists be like, hmm, I don't know if this is possible. Some skepticism.
2: Oh. I mean, mm. I'm not
4: saying, I have no idea. How? I mean, who would ever know? How could you tell? It's such a great, I, I hope it's true.
2: I hope it's true. The picture of him was great. Also, in the hospital. He's got this real shit-eating grin on after he'd survived it. I guess if you do survive a whale Attack a whale uh, eating you. You probably do smile. He
4: just sort of swam in and swam out.
2: Yeah, that is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers: Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGapFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week (music) hello slate plus how are you uh good you're listening to us probably on your your smartphone you're probably uh doing it at a time you're filling some interstitial time a time when in years past you might have just gone for a walk and not done anything you might have just gone to the gym and not done anything but now you've got to fill every minute and so you have earbuds in and you're listening to podcasts and cramming yourself with information at a time when you might otherwise have been contemplative
4: wait wait you're making people feel bad for listening i don't that seems like a mistake
2: they're slate plus listeners they've already paid they like it so much they've already paid they're they're not going to give up just because i just doing some setup on a slate plus segment
3: uh
2: i personally i can't even go for a walk without listening to something. Anyway, so the the, the subject of discussion today, it's late plus, is what do we miss? What a pre technology world, the pre kind of internet era world, do we miss in terms of activities and things that we used to have to do that we no longer have to do? And I have a list. I can give my. You list. give your
4: list. I want to hear your list.
2: So so the, I'm not saying I miss all these things, but just the list of just to give it just to, to to get the saliva going here to stimulate the 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 saliva glands. Looking at paper maps. Uh, Answering a telephone, not knowing who's at the other end of it, waiting somewhere and not having anything to do because you don't have a phone, writing a letter, cooking without necessarily having a recipe at hand, writing anything in handwriting, getting lost, waiting to watch a TV show, having a filing cabinet, writing a traveler's check or having a traveler's check, writing a check, going to an actual movie, meeting up with somebody. This is the most amazing thing to me is I remember in 1988, I'd graduated from high school, and me and my friend Paul Larson were traveling across Europe and we were meeting our friend Monty Razor uh, in Avignon, France. How the fuck did we know where and when to meet Monty? We were in we didn't have phones. We didn't have anything. We just you set made a, a plan and we made a plan it. and like we actually met up and like, what yeah. if we, but what if he hadn't been there? What would we have done? How did that even work? I miss waiting somewhere and not having something to do. I yeah. miss that. I really miss, I, I hate the way when I, when I just have nothing to do, I don't Used to carry a book everywhere. I don't carry a book everywhere with me anymore or just sitting there and kind of just wander around looking at people strolling around I'm still a stroller I still do stroll around rather than sit at places mostly but that kind of inactivity where you're observing the world I miss
3: that um I mean I spend a lot of time trying to undo and be intentional about returning to some of these practices so I spend you know lots of time writing things by hand I still write letters um
2: you know try to write a letter not to me yeah not to me. Yes, you did write. It. You wrote me a letter. He John wrote me a letter once.
3: Um, yeah, I was and uh, and I've been helped in this by so many different kinds of people who who've written about our shredded world of attention. Cal Newport is the one who's on my mind at the moment. His book Deep Work makes the case, and there have been plenty of psychological studies about this. That the time you spend when you're sitting alone uh, waiting for something to happen. When you go check something, it's not just that you're not seeing the world around you, but you're habituating yourself to that, you know, little dopamine response you get. And that that actually um, undermines your ability to attend to things and have deep work and attention at the times you want to actually have it. So that negative.
2: GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.